this is At Your Cervix, the podcast. The podcast where pelvic health physiotherapist Emma Brockwell and Gwanya Donnelly talk to incredible guests who help lift the lid and bust the myth on all things pelvic health. This episode is brought to you by Pelvic Relief. Born out of necessity, Pelvic Relief was founded by mother of three, Eleanor Gardner, for all of those who discovered they could not access quality products and information to manage conditions such as pelvic pain, incontinence and painful sex. Led by science and quality, Pelvic Relief has brought together best-in-class products for Pelvic Relief, including source silicon and GRS dilators, O-nut, EVB support wear, period and incontinence pants, EZ Magic and yes, lubricants and moisturisers. Gronya and I highly recommend Pelvic Relief, frequently referring our patients to purchase quality products, knowing they will receive a quality service. To visit the website, visit www.pelvicrelief.co.uk. Thank you so much, Pelvic Relief, for sponsoring At Your Cervix podcast. Hello, welcome back to At Your Cervix, the podcast. I'm Emma Brockwell, and today, Gronia and I are joined by a super lovely guest, Casey Sanders, who is a physical therapist who practices with precision performance and physical therapy. She specializes in treating runners, triathletes, and endurance athletes with a special interest in female athletes. She's also a runner and an athlete herself, and has in the past suffered from REDS, which is relative energy deficiency in sports. Gronya and I have actually been really lucky enough to work with Casey a little bit in the past. So we were on her fab podcast called More Than Miles that she co-hosts with Kate McKeevy. And she joined us as an expert on our online course, The Athletic Female. Um, so, of course, we had to get on to At Your Cervix so that you, our lovely listeners, could hear from her too. So welcome, Casey. Thank you for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. There's no other way I'd like to spend my Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, you're very chipper. We're very, it's, it's eight o'clock in the evening for us. Gonya and I are both quite tired, but Casey's full of beans. <laughs> we're cold. If, you we're could cold. See, if, you could, if anyone can see the, the video, <laughs> it is a laugh to be had because I'm sitting with lots of woolen um, accessories on and at the minute Casey's sitting in a t-shirt. So yes, we're, we're, having, we're having different experiences here, but we're so all happy to be together chatting and can't wait to get stuck in the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Where are you at the moment, Casey? I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, which is kind of the southeastern portion of the United States. Um, we are, <laughs> I bragged earlier about our temperatures, so I won't <laughs> repeat them, um, but it's quite nice uh, here in early fall in the south. So, <laughs> Dreamy. Sounds amazing. So we, we really wanted to get you on the podcast to discuss a subject that we've covered before, um, I touched on this a moment ago, red, relative energy deficiency in sports. Um, the last time we spoke about this was actually on our last um, season. Um, and we spoke to Sophia Hager, who is a triathlete. Um, and we were really discussing the effects that reds had had on her uh, career as a triathlete, but also um, her pregnancy and postpartum journey. Whereas, of course, you have also suffered from REDS, which hopefully we can delve into in just a moment. But we're really keen to hear your perspective as to how it's affected you as an athlete, as a, as a woman, but also your views as a physical therapist, because I believe you treat women now who also suffer from REDS. So you have a really multi-layered perspective on REDS, don't you? Yeah, and I think it's been like 
one of my superpowers as a, as a physical therapist, having gone through it myself and yeah. kind of knowing how many angles it comes from. Um, cause knowing the signs and symptoms and the science is one thing, but then knowing the experience and the emotional effects, um, and actually knowing it from an experiential side of things, um, I think has really been helpful. Um, especially just in connecting with people, they feel a little bit more open when they know that I understand. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's so, there's so much value in that. I think before we delve into your story, can you tell us, um, what is REDS for those of us listening who might not be so sure? Yeah, sure. So, um, relative energy deficiency in sport, um, it probably, uh, it seems a little outdated to say it used to be the female athlete triad because we've been here for a while now. <laughs> um, but it, it basically explains this uh, imbalance between energy intake and energy expenditure, um, particularly in sports. So, of course, this could be akin to starvation in other populations, but um, this is more geared towards the athletic population. Um, and it has a variety of symptoms uh, and they can mimic overtraining, so it can get a little bit muddy in there. Um, but at, at the end of the day, it's about this about this imbalance between, um, you know, uh, energy that is taken in and energy that's expended, and it can just have a wide ranging effects um, on all systems of the body, which is something that the female athlete triad didn't explain before. Um, and then red S also includes men because this can happen to both men and women. Um, not sure how many men are going to be listening to an at your cervix podcast. Um, <laughs> we, hope, we hope they are. I'm they calling should. on men. Please listen. You need to know this. <laughs> I totally agree. But, um, just, uh, I, I always joke. Um, I gave a, a talk about red S, um, at a, a sports conference, a couple months ago now, and I made a, a joke that this happens to men too, but that this conference wasn't about them. <laughs> yeah, not um, everything has to be about men. <laughs> right. Too right. But also we've got to think about men that are working with, you know, female athletes as well. And the fact that they absolutely need to be aware of, of this because it's, you know, it's such a key topic. It's a hot topic, but it's a topic that we still need to be talking about. Um, I think that was a beautiful definition of uh, Red S. Um, but before we get to your um, experience with it, um, tell us about young Casey. So, um, you know, what kind of kid were you? You obviously love sports. So, so tell us, tell us a little bit more about you as a you as a young child. Yeah, sure. So, um, a lot of my personality traits, I think, lended me to <laughs> developing an eating disorder on Red S. Um, very, you know, perfectionistic, um, even at a young age. Very um, oddly interested in health at a very young age. Um, but I mean, if we, we look past that, I was very competitive. So, anytime um, there was some sort of competition, whether it be a spelling bee or, um, you know, playing games at recess, I wanted to win and I wanted to do well. And so that carried over into school. And I just always, I was always really, um, really keen on achievement, right? And I think, um, we'll get into this later, I think that that's one of the things that really got me into the mess that I got myself into. Um, but, you know, for the most part, I was um, pretty, pretty happy kid, I think. Um, I, I definitely struggled socially some, uh, like was just very, you know, focused on my sports and school. And um, I just I really had a hard time somehow relating to kids my age. And um, I don't know if that's because I was an only child or, or what, but I do remember struggling a lot socially. And um, a lot of what filled that void was the achievements through grades and, and things like that. Um, 
but I, uh, I grew up playing all kinds of sports and kind of settled on soccer when I was 11, 11 or 12, I think. And, uh, that kind of was most of my childhood was playing soccer or I guess football as it is in yeah. the, the UK. Um, and, uh, so that was kind of my childhood, like playing soccer, going to tournaments all over the state of Florida, which is where I'm from. And, um, it, I, I felt really dedicated to it. I really wanted to get better. And, um, again, I just really liked the improvement piece mm-hmm. of sports and that like was very interested in hard work and outcomes. So, um, yeah, I guess that's young, that's young Casey. And so the football, um, was your passion, but I think evolved into more running and endurance as you got a little older. So what, what happened to the football and amongst all of, all of that? Yeah. So, um, I went to a a high school that was very, very competitive in girls soccer, um, girls football. (laughs) And uh, they had won two state championships back to back, and was just a very, very good team. And um, even though it was technically not uh, illegal or legal, sounds like a, a strong word, but people, girls weren't supposed to be able to transfer between schools for sports purposes. But um, it did happen all the time, and girls would come to my school to play soccer. Um, so I'm setting this up to say I wasn't a terrible soccer player, but I also <laughs> wasn't um, amazing. I wasn't good, that good. Um, so I did not make our soccer team. Um, I played on JV two years, which is kind of uh, the uh, second string soccer team. And um, I kind of shifted my focus at that point to, to running and specifically distance running. Because I, um, I had dabbled in track a little bit my um, first two years of, of high school. and. Um, that's kind of a whole thing in itself because I was like very early obsessed in um, track and field and didn't didn't race in a single meet either year because I got I injured myself from mm-hmm. training too hard. Um, wow. But anyway, so I I I'd started it started in track, but I remember my true passion for running starting um, when I started running cross country, long, running longer distances, um, the five k, and then. I did my first half marathon my junior year of high school and um really young it it was yeah so I ran my first half marathon when I was a junior in high school so I was 17 maybe and then uh first marathon I was 20 actually yeah that's fantastic and what I was wondering there when you were talking about um, the soccer and obviously it being quite a competitive uh, school and obviously getting lots of interest with people transferring in was when you then developed your interest for running, was there any element of your journey into developing Reds from feeling like you didn't make the soccer team? You know, did that feed into it? Did that feed into nearly that idea of having to excel at the next sport that you went to? Yeah, so um, running, uh, so I kind of have like two different sort of journeys with, with Red S and eating disorder. So the when I first developed an eating disorder, I was actually 13 and I was only playing soccer at the time. And um, it's, I think it, there was a lot of like changes going on in my life. Like I'd switched schools and I'd already struggled socially in one school and then got plopped into a school where I didn't know anybody. So I think that was part of it. Um, and I just put all my focus into soccer, which translated into kind of like over-exercising, eating less, um, and then kind of developed from there. And then, um, 
there was like, you know, a whole hospitalization process with that. And we can talk more about that if you guys want to. Um, so that was kind of a first iteration. And I kind of got through that acute stage, but still dealt with a pretty unhealthy relationship with food. And um, while, you know, maybe I wasn't really because I never sought medical treatment for this as I wish I would have. And like, I'm seeing girls at my age now that I probably followed the same course, but just didn't have anyone to help me with it. Um, so I'm sure I had read S in high school, but it wasn't officially diagnosed. Um, but, um, you know, long story short, like I didn't get my first natural menstrual cycle until I was 21, which is really, really late. Um, so given all of that, I know that there was a lot going on with my body physiologically and I really, um, started kind of over exercising. I was probably eating okay, maybe enough. I was a little bit more in the healthy range in terms of, um, energy intake, but, uh, again, all the injuries, all the overtraining, I really went into over exercising, um, and just really wanting, you know, the, the external validation of getting better, which, um, you know, when you look at running as a sport, it's, it was one of those first sports where I was like, wow, I work harder and I get better. Mm. Like there's this direct kind of connection there. Um, and soccer, there's so many like politics and who knows the coach and whose parents are the loudest <laughs> and things like that. So, um, I think I'm really veering off from the question at this point. Um, but actually, I, you're, I think it's really interesting that you brought up um, the eating disorder again, because for any of our listeners who aren't as aware of relative energy deficiency in sport, can you discuss a little bit about whether there is there a relationship between red S and eating disorders? Is that something that commonly coexists with people who present with red S? Or can you discuss a little bit more about the eating disorder? Because it's a really, it's a really important topic that a lot of, particularly our female listeners, will have come into contact with or struggle with, but there can be a lot of um, taboos around in it and it can be quite hard to access help. And so I think it's a really important topic to raise awareness about. Yeah, absolutely. So oftentimes they do come together um, because eating disorders usually have to do with some sort of restriction of food, um, kind of like purging of food. So, um, you know, not actually absorbing the nutrients that someone consumes through like bulimia, that sort of thing. Um, and all of these things have to do with more like, like from a clinical perspective, an eating disorder has to do with relationship to food and like intentional restriction of intake somehow. Um, when we look at red S, it's definitely possible for some people not to have a decent relationship with food, but just not be consuming enough because of lack of, you know, not usually lack of availability, lack of availability of information, just not knowing, um, how much they are expending during, during the day. Um, but I, I mean, I find that a little bit less common. I think with a lot of red S conditions, there's some sort of mental, emotional component to it. And then alongside that, some sort of, um, poor relationship with food or some sort of, um, kind of red flaggy relationship with food. So I, I see the two, you know, come together a lot. Um, and I would say, you know, in runners specifically, cause these are the, the, the girls that I usually see, um, it's usually some form of anorexia or bulimia and then, um, red S as a result, because they just aren't, uh, taking in enough calories for their, their training that they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And what you've touched on it a few times, but what were the physical implications of, of your eating disorder? You mentioned that you were hospitalized. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, sure. So um, this had been going on for roughly eight months or so. Um, and it had taken a while for all of us, um, myself and my family to realize that there was something wrong. There was something that needed to be addressed. And um, my parents knew something was wrong. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know who to go to. Um, you know, we had addressed my, um, my pediatrician um, in relation to my menstrual cycle and things like that, but nothing um, really directed towards the main issue that I had an eating disorder, which we all didn't know at the time. Um, and so there was one day where my parents decided to take me for a psychology consult, um, at the children's hospital and, uh, they're taking my vitals before I even get into the psychology consult. And, um, the nurse is having a really difficult time taking my blood pressure. Um, just like not finding a, a reading. Um, and then my, I have a congenitally low heart rate. Um, but I think having that um and was alarming enough for them to hospitalize me i think it might not have been i think it might have been relatively normal maybe on the low side but i mean you know i'm sitting there with a heart rate of like 40 ish um as a young as a young girl as a 13 year old girl so um definitely was alarming to the medical staff and so they um they took me actually to the icu right away um scanned all my organs um hooked me up with everything and um everything checked out fine medically. Um, but they still kept me there for, I, I believe it was like 48 hours and, you know, I didn't sleep or anything like that for a while. And, um, eventually, you know, I was allowed to go to a step down unit and was, was it in the ICU anymore? But I mean, medically everything, um, had checked out fine. Um, but, uh, I was like in such a state of, state of like shock and just, um, like, uh, I don't know. It was just a really crazy mental space to be in. Um, I, you know, there's, <laughs> it was, yeah. Um, and so they kind of slowly, they, they treated me as if I was like pretty much a starving patient. So I, um, was given, um, there was like a nutritional protein shake or whatever, um, called Ensure, um, which I will <laughs> could never, ever, ever, ever eat ever again. Um, but I started out with like four of those a day, which was like a thousand calories. And then they just kept like ramping me up, ramping me up. And so, um, anyway, long story short, I was in the hospital for three weeks and, um, I really hadn't gained a ton of weight or really showed any signs of recovery, but I, um, really wanted to go to school because again, I did not want this to mess up my future. I didn't want to mess up school. So, um, you know, my family and I basically begged them to let me go. And, I really remember uh, the the main nurse in control of my care told my parents that they're like, she's going to be back. I mean, you know, this, this is going to happen again. Um, which it didn't luckily. That's the competitive um, side. You heard them say that and you were like, <laughs> I will not be back. Yeah. I was like, Nope. I mean, it was definitely, it was definitely a rough go for a year or so, but I, yeah, I figured it out. I had some sort of motivation to, to kind of dig myself out of it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I worked with a nutritionist and stuff like that, but I just, I really wish um, the psychology side was was mm. more addressed at the time because um, that was where I needed the most help. Because mm. you mentioned that um, at that stage when you're 
when you and your family knew something was happening, but you weren't sure what. So even at that stage, until you got admitted, you didn't recognize that you had an eating disorder. I know you were very young, so that makes yeah. sense. But it's, it's, it's mad looking back now, reflectively looking back. Can you see in the run up to that how it was an eating disorder? And like how, how in terms of the mindset that you were in, how did you get, how did that develop? As such, yeah, I think um, it is. It is interesting. I think it's a little bit of an abnormal course towards it, um, especially being that young. And my my motivations, I think, were a little bit different than than maybe what is typical. But um, I think it was that need for this like external success. Um, so for me, eating less was a success, and weighing less was a success. So every time. I successfully got through a day eating less than the day before, or I'd seen a lower number on the scale. Um, I felt good about myself and, you know, people would comment on it and that also made me feel good about myself. And, um, I think my, my, you know, now that I realized my, my inner dialogue was so bad that the only way I had anything positive was coming from the outside. And so I was doing these things, you know, getting the grades, doing the sports, um, losing weight even. Um, just to feel um, successful in some way and to have some sort of positivity coming in, which is totally misguided. Um, but, I, you know, looking back and trying to kind of sort out the situation um, from where I am now, uh, that's kind of my best kind of assessment of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I had no idea. Um, I remember like the nurses wouldn't let me go to the bathroom by myself, which I did not understand. Um, and uh, the reason why is because, uh, you know, there was a chance that maybe I had bulimia, they wanted to make sure I wasn't throwing up, so on and so forth. And so um, I, I didn't understand why they were following me. And I didn't understand why they kept asking me why I was brushing my teeth. I was like, just brushing my teeth. So I, I was like completely just... So naive um, to it nearly, yeah. Completely <laughs> naive. I just was on this mission to be as light as possible and to be as successful as possible. And... Um, until yeah, the the psychiatrist looked at me in the eyes, and she's he's like, you have anorexia nervosa, and I had never heard that word before. Oh, you hadn't. Oh, wow. Mm-mm. Gosh, it's almost like you were you you weren't seeing you at all within what I mean. Had had other people potentially thought that that's what was going on? Had your parents had a strong idea that that was probably the what diagnosis she'd receive? Yeah, potentially. And it's like funny because to me, I feel like nobody knew, right? I felt like it was just um, a secret. You know, I, w- I felt like it was a secret. I felt yeah. like I was protecting it really well. Um, but I think I was like so narrow minded at the time and so tunnel visioned into what I was doing. I don't think I noticed a lot of things because I think back, I'm like, well, gosh, why didn't we do this? Why didn't we do that? And it's, I think my parents did. And I think healthcare providers did try to do things, but I was so. Um, and on, on a total different mental wavelength at the time that I just didn't notice. Um, and it sounds like you were functioning at quite a high level as well, you know, with your schoolwork and your sport. It doesn't sound like they were horribly affected um, by the state by the time you got into hospital, which I find I find that unbelievable that you probably weren't eating much at all. And yet you were you were really functioning quite effectively. Yeah, I mean, from what I recall, I was. I mean, at, at you know, at the worst, I was eating less than a thousand calories a day. I'm pretty sure. Wow. Um, and I do remember thinking something was wrong physiologically. Like I would lay in bed at night, and I could like 
feel like my heart beating harder than normal, like still slow, but like kind of harder. And it would keep me up sometimes. Mm-hmm. And um, so that would scare me, but like, I didn't put the two together. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure there was some sort of physical decline. Like, if, you know, I mean, I was playing soccer at the time and mm-hmm. um, actually was a goalkeeper. So I wasn't really running that much. Um, I was doing other exercise as part of my, my eating disorder. But, um, I think definitely if I had been, you know, on the field or, you know, a a running athlete at the time, I think my, my performance would have been Mm. quite bad. And Casey, when you mentioned that obviously you wish that there was more of the clinical psych, clinical psychology support at the time, did those services exist and you just, they didn't think that that was a need for you or was it a case that when we go back to the time when you got diagnosed, that the service provision just simply wasn't there in these multidisciplinary teams? Um, I think it, it was included. Like, I remember there was a therapist who saw me, like, maybe once a day or every other day. But I remember it just not being helpful um, and not being as intense as it needed to be. They were very concerned about how much I weighed and my vitals and how I was doing physiologically, which is fair. Um, that's their job in the hospital to make sure that you're, you're functioning physiologically. But, um, yeah, I definitely feel like the mental health resources were not emphasized as much as they needed to be. Um, you know, I wish that I could have been put into an inpatient care facility because I think that would have turned things around and helped me heal. But I mean, they're so, so expensive. Cause I had asked my parents, I finally just last year, I asked them like, why didn't we do that? And mm. you know, cost. My goodness, huge barrier. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, when mm-hmm. you think about it, which is really, really difficult because that's where we take for granted in the UK as much as we give off at times, but we have the National Health Service and we take a lot mm-hmm. of our health care for granted because it's free at the point of access. Um, we pay for it in other ways, but it's free at the point of yeah. access. Um, yeah. Although but- I think it's interesting because with COVID, um, lots of uh, teenagers, there's been a, a huge um, increase in, in girls and boys suffering from eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And, and the NHS can't cope with, with the huge demands on the service. So these kids aren't getting seen for months and months and months and months. So although the NHS is incredible, we also have limitations, especially, I think, around eating disorders and, and mental health, unfortunately. You know what I wanted to just double back on a little bit, Casey, was, so we've talked a little bit about the eating disorder and that journey. And obviously that was one of the things that then developed into that energy deficiency and relative energy deficiency in sport. You mentioned that you didn't get your first natural menstrual cycle until age 21, did you say? Um, Tell us for the listeners, what are the key signs and symptoms that someone might be in an energy deficit? So what sort of things might, I know it um, impacts multiple bodily system what are the key signs and symptoms we tend to like raise a red flag for yeah so starting with the menstrual cycle so for um for for younger women we'll see either delay onset um of of the the menstrual cycle itself um or if they have started it they will lose it um after you know i think physiologically um everyone's different with where in their point of red s do they lose their menstrual cycle but nonetheless it's one of the most clear red flags for it um there'll be you know fatigue um there can be like hair loss or brittleness of the nails um things like that um like uh stomach and like psychological distress um like 
altered sleep patterns. So either difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep. Um, and there's it just, it impacts everything. If I can mm. <laughs> kind of list things out. Right. Um, cause you know, your body ultimately goes into survival mode. So it's only performing the things that it really needs to do. Um, and so forget about high performance in sport after that. Right. Um, but I think, I think brain fog and like mental health changes and like demeanor changes is a big thing too, to look out for. Um, like if someone is usually kind of happy go lucky and pretty go with the flow and then all of a sudden seems not that way and seems really, um, sort of angry or irritable. Um, I think that's a big thing that we overlook sometimes. Um, out of interest, because you were doing so much, I suppose, sport, whether it was soccer or running, one of the other telltale signs from a physiotherapist or physical therapist point of view that we look out for are the likes of bony stress injuries because there can be in survival mode, we tend to not, I suppose, have as much focus on our bone health and then we can get some um, weakening there. Did you experience any um, stress fractures during your journey? I didn't. Um, and I honestly do not know how. <laughs> That's why I was expecting you to say yes or to say a couple. <laughs> Yeah, I've been injured plenty. Um, I've had, you know, tendon, muscle strain, um, things that have stopped me from running, like other diagnoses. Um, but I've never been diagnosed with a stress fracture. Um, wow. <laughs> I, you know, from a healthcare provider standpoint, I am very, very fearful of menopause when my estrogen starts to drop. Um, I, my goal this year, which I, it's October and I haven't done it yet, but was to get all of my health screening, like to get my bone density, right. DEXA scan, um, and kind of see where I am. Um, I, but you know, I've done nine marathons. I run 50 miles a week and, um, you know, haven't, I've never had a stress fracture. I don't know how. Um, but I again, celebrate I, though that that's a, that's good. Like that, that's yeah. a marker of health in a way. And that should be something that you're proud of mm. in many ways. And, and I'm actually interested in, with keeping that in mind. So bear in mind that when you were at the beginning of your recovery journey for Reg, you hadn't had a stress fracture at that point. And then since then, you've obviously been on a journey of health. And um, what are the main things that you did to, I suppose, get on top of things and is that an ongoing is that a lifelong journey or do you get to a stage where you're I suppose not in remission from res but you know what I mean like mm -hmm. it's behind you yeah um it's definitely a lifelong journey um and I would say the past two years have been where I've had the most growth and have actually been able to recognize how um you know I don't think anyone's ever completely healed but I you know I say it all the time and it kind of brings tears to my eyes when I think about it, but like, I never, I never thought I would be as healthy as I am now. Um, I really never thought I would get to this, this place, not only in just, you know, physiological function in terms of not having stress fractures and being a healthy weight and having a healthy menstrual cycle, but, um, just my relationship with food and with sport, um, has just improved drastically over the past two to three years. Mm -hmm. Um, and there'd always been like little things operating in the background, but I'd always been able to cope and kind of get through it. And I think once I graduated PT school and um, my mental health actually crashed, I realized how like intertwined everything was. And that's when I was like, okay, I want to, I want to unpack all of this. I want to figure this out. I always talk about going to therapy, like um, opening Pandora's box 
um, where, you know, you're in, you have to battle whatever's in that box and like, you can keep it closed, but all of that is still there until you open it and you deal with it. Um, and so I've been kind of going through that process in the past four ish, four to five years or so. And do you think uh, that's been the key to your recovery? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Going to, going to therapy and addressing my like mental health and sort of the mental underpinnings of it. Right. Um, cause I was, you know, functioning physiologically. Okay. Um, I'd finally had like been very consistent with my period starting in 2017. So I started it at 21, which was, oh goodness. Um, 2012, 2013, somewhere in there, and then would kind of lose it intermittently in there. Um, and I've been consistently going since 2017, um, which oh, is really exciting. That's a yeah, really exciting. marker. That is really I, good. I know. I'm like, I know this is weird in most circles to, to talk about. To that, celebrate but, your cycle. <laughs> yes. The power of the period. We normally moan, don't we? But isn't that just so, just, it's, it's, it's your fifth vital sign, isn't it? You know, we've had Michelle Lyons on here before talking about that. And, and it really is. And it really should, we should be celebrating um, our menstrual cycle. I think that's, I think that's brilliant. I love that. Yeah, there's more awareness even across the board so across like yeah. and I think we need to get that awareness into people before there ever is potential problems so that we have the health education and understanding like you say Emma that it is a vital sign because again the culture when I was growing up was that we did kind of think oh my goodness yeah. I dread getting it and it was nearly such a nuisance and since I've improved my education over the years because even when I came out as a physiotherapist I wasn't as aware of the importance of menstrual health even at that point so it's only really getting into the sports interests and female health that I've developed my understanding of it but now mm. I significantly track and celebrate getting a cycle and even if I'm one day late or something I'm starting to kind of flag yeah. that not even just from a point of view of well, what's going on with me physiologically? And unfortunately, um, Katie, we're at the stage where I, I'm nearly thinking if, if I'm getting a cycle one day later, I'm like, oh my God, physiology is starting to change. I'm coming out the other, I'm going to enter the other You're side. entering my world. <laughs> <laughs> Perimenopause, all the oh, joys no. it's going to bring. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because I wonder if in the, in the athletic world, if not having a period is almost, a, is it a badge of honour almost for some women? It, it it was um previously and i think it still is to mm. to some extent in the in the running world because it um it's a badge of uh, working hard you know you're working so hard to basically to stress out your body so that you lose part of your reproductive function which when you put it that way does not sound as glamorous but Mm-mm. um well it's not glamorous at all <laughs> is the answer um but i actually have a funny kind of a funny story about that i was running with a friend um this is a while ago now. And I was like, kind of thinking about all this. I was getting ready for my, my talk um, in August. And I was like, gosh, I just, I never want to lose my period ever again. Like even, you know, if it's one or two days late, I start to freak out. And she's like, what? Cause you're pregnant. I was like, Oh no, no. <laughs> Not I, like, even on the radar. Yeah. I forgot there was other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, that's, that's another time, right? <laughs> yeah. You know what? It's other. funny because, um, when we were talking to, yeah, in our previous um, season, when we were um, focusing more on the impact of reds in athletic populations, it was it was an issue because we had an athlete who wanted to get pregnant and realized then that 
because she had such sporadic, like she, Reds wasn't on her radar either, which is really worrying that in terms of our own education and awareness about our health, particularly within the athletic high-performance worlds, like we should know that that's a indicator and sign of health and well-being. But anyway, it came to her wanting to get pregnant and then the worry of she might, this might not be a journey for her. But it's really, it's it's it's, I always think that everybody should have options available to them should they want to explore certain avenues. And I think that it's even just nice knowing that you have regular cycles mm-hmm. so that you have that option while it's not in your radar. <laughs> yeah, so, and um, I think it's getting a little better now, but standard care for secondary amenorrhea, like what we're talking about, was to give a woman birth control, um, yeah. which is um, not correct. <laughs> uh, we definitely need to explore other avenues before doing something like that. And it's just not helpful in terms of reproductive health. And then, you know, we're always, we're just kind of placing a bandaid on the mm-hmm. fact that they're under fueling. Um, so yeah, and they're getting that resource cycle am I right when when people are just put on the contraceptions then it can be a marker of health that's not really a marker of health if you know what I mean because it's just as you say it's masking almost that's right mm-hmm. scary so what I wondered was you touched on it again earlier about the fact that you, you, you didn't get a diagnosis of red I never actually got you know officially diagnosed with it I mean I knew from my my own education and from from reading about it and you know I think I came across it once I finally started learning about eating disorders, which took me a long time to be able to actually learn about this from the scientific and medical side because it was so, um, you know, it was a trauma, it was a traumatic experience for me, and I just kind of wanted to leave it, you know, behind me. And of course, now I'm at the the opposite end of the spectrum, which I'm really happy to be here, and that I want to talk about it. I I want this to be actually like a cornerstone of my practice as a physical therapist, and I want to make some sort of difference that. Hopefully we can decrease the numbers and decrease the number of people who are dealing with this. Um, but yeah, I never really officially diagnosed. Like I never had one doctor who told me, um, you know, like this is what I, I think is going on. I want you to get these tests and things like that. A lot of this I did on my own. Um, and I mean, Kate, my boss, was my physical therapist before she was my my boss. Um, and she was someone who like kind of nudged me and like, hey, like you're telling me that you haven't had a normal period, you know, in these years, I really think you should get some things checked out. Did I get things checked out? No. But <laughs> I um, at least started to Seems realize it. Yes, I at least started to realize that. Go Kate. Um, love Kate. <laughs> oh, don't. Yeah, I love her so much. Um <laughs> So yeah, I've never been officially diagnosed and a lot of the things that I've done have been kind of on my own and in terms of, um, you know, researching for my own practice and then like having to kind of reflect it back and look in the mirror and be like, okay, I need to be doing these things for myself as well. And in terms of your now practice as a physical therapist, do you feel that, obviously you said that your experience was a huge part of your journey with this, even in the services you provide as a physical therapist. Do you feel now that you're able to implement necessary education, advice, resources, signposts, and that sort of thing to women coming in who may be on a similar journey to you? Do you feel that they're accessing the type of stuff that you needed to access earlier? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, sometimes I see people on different ends of the spectrum. I see some who have been kind of caught somewhere along their medical journey and now they're in PT to work on their strength and bone density and things like that. Um, and they have all those resources. But then I've also seen people who have, you know, maybe some idea that there's something going on, 
um, but don't really have that medical team assembled. And so at that point, I, you know, educate on that and the importance of having a mental health professional, having an orthopedic on board, their primary care physician, getting blood work. Um, but the big thing is the mental health care professor, pro, pro, uh, professional. And mm-hmm. I think that that is important no matter, um, you know, if they, if they verbalize their relationship with food or not, cause they may not be telling you. Um, but the, the other thing I do is like, if I do pick up on the fact that, you know, this person might have a poor relationship with food, then I just, I share my own story and I just, just tell them, you know, that I've been through it and that, um, this was sort of my experience. And, and usually that makes them feel a little bit more comfortable and that I understand where they're coming from. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, I just talk about it sort of in conversation and then they'll tell me a few visits later that they had struggled with it too. Um, I think that's really powerful actually. And it's, it creates a safe space nearly. And it creates also an element of I'm not alone because I see parallels to that with pelvic health in many ways, because pelvic health symptoms are often quite taboo and people mask them or suffer in silence. And sometimes if you either tell them that the majority of women or share your own maybe experience with any sort of symptoms, people suddenly are like, oh my goodness. And suddenly it's the, ga- the gate opens mm-hmm. and, and they're now, they've got, you nearly give them the permission to talk about it, which I think is something that as physical therapists or physiotherapists, we're really fortunate to get to build a rapport in time with our patients because I think that's often what's lost in some clinics where medical professionals literally your conveyor belt and they have a snapshot of five minutes to see you. You're never going to create an environment that's safe for someone to give such vulnerable information in a way snapshot thing so I think that you're doing something that's really really important and um yeah I think that it's so brave of you to share your story as well so on behalf of female kind everywhere I'd like to thank you for that (laughs) uh you're welcome I um (laughs) I uh I decided it was really important I don't remember when but I just decided it was really important to share um and you know, I'm, I don't have a huge platform, but in my social circles, I've definitely had people reach out to me and I've written blogs about it. And I get emails sometimes like people asking, like, I think my daughter's is is struggling with this. What should I do? Things like that. And, um, I, I, I love it now. I think it's such an important work and, um, it was really, really scary in the beginning, but now it's just, I'm, I'm on a mission and it's just important to do. And, um, I'm as open as I need to be about it. Well, you're yeah. having international sort of impact, so you, yeah, you're maybe you're you're underselling yourself a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so you, yeah. So th- thank you, thank you for just sharing a few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it's really important to highlight your blog because your blog is amazing. It, I was, I've been reading it over the past few days because we knew that we had this interview lined up, and you're such a beautiful writer. You undersell oh, yourself you. in your blog the whole time. You're like, yeah, I'm just dabbling with a bit of creative writing. It's beautiful. Um, <laughs> but but I noticed uh, one of your blogs was around the um, panel discussion that we'd had for The Athletic Female. You have to read it, Gordy, yeah. if you haven't read it, because it's, it's, it's really eye-opening actually and I remember this when we when when I was talking to you and Kirsty Elliott Sale and oh my goodness my mind's gone blank uh who else Helen oh and Helen Helen McElroy was it Helen it was Helen you you were hosting yeah 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 this is this is what happens in the perimenopause (laughs) you forget 
what happened only a few months ago okay it's, it, it's not it's not a happy place sometimes um but anyway when when we were all talking about um red s and i remember watching your face when i asked you about your um own personal journey with red s and kirsty was scribbling away now kirsty for those of you don't, who don't know is a world leading expert in in right. Red S. Uh, she's amazing. You know, you'll find her in, on pretty much every research paper around this topic. And yet, she stopped, didn't she? And she was just scribbling and and watching you and listening to you. And you wrote a blog about it because I think I think that impacted you quite a lot. What what was it that surprised you so much about how she was taking your information on board? Um, you know, because I had seen myself in that panel discussion as a little bit of a color commentator to provide my experience. Like, I know a lot about it, um, but I, I wouldn't consider myself an expert on um, either, you know, Kirstie or Helen's level. And um, to the thought that I was potentially teaching um, one of the most brilliant researchers on this topic <laughs> something um, was really interesting to me. And I... Um, it did. It helped me kind of acknowledge that that there's a lot of value in having this experience. Mm. And of course, you can't ask someone like if you want to help females with this issue, you have to go through it yourself. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. But um, I did. I found it really, um, really interesting. And it 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 struck me a little bit um, that yeah, I mean, she was just scribbling away, and I was like, what am I saying? That's that's interesting. This is just my life, right? I'm just talking about my experience. Um, but it's a really important piece of, of dealing with, so with people with this. Yeah. So important. And I, I remember finishing the discussion with the same question I'm going to ask you now. Um, and that was, you know, what would you say to anyone struggling with maybe an eating disorder or red ass? What, what advice would you give them? And you can't use the answer, I was up all night thinking about this. <laughs> I can't this time because you sent you me the question exactly. um, a couple hours ago. At least a couple of hours ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I will add a little bit to what I said last time, which the the first and foremost, um, it's it's worth it to seek treatment. It's worth it to go through all of these steps that seem really scary and really frustrating. And you know, the medical system here in the U.S. Um, or maybe across the world can be a little bit difficult to to navigate and to get the appointments that you need. Um, but you know, I, I think the, the big thing I've, that's been really helpful for me lately is I, I ask myself, do I want to, um, do I want to be healthy or do I want to look a certain way? And I just ask myself that question. Do I want to be healthy? Do I want to run fast is the other thing I say, or do I want, sorry, do I want to run fast or do I want to look a certain way? Cause those things aren't the same. Um, optimizing my physiology and being as healthy as I possibly can be. Um, is going to help me reach those goals that were, you know, that, that I was going towards in sort of a misguided manner before and making some decisions in terms of fueling. So um, I think, you know, trying to let let health come first and performance come second and let performance follow that, um, I think is, is so, so important. Because we have to remember that, you know, every, every part of our lives is a, is a stage and that we kind of progress through things and, you know, the stage isn't forever. The next stage isn't forever. Um, and so just trying to keep that long-term, that long-term view on it, I think, uh, has been really helpful as well. Um, but yeah, seek help, tell someone about it. Um, 
no matter like if you know it can be in the medical profession or it could be you know just sharing with a friend I think that's really powerful too and if you think you have someone like if anyone's listening to this and they're starting to think about somebody else in their circles or life share the likes of these resources or Casey's blog with them because there's going to be really meaningful information in it and it's interesting Casey just when you were saying about the do, how do I want to look? Do I want to perform or do I want to look a certain way? Because I think in female, at every life stage, we are hit with, we nearly all have to have conversations with ourselves, I think, about um, expectations in many ways, because I think we live in a world that drives us to believe that women should look a certain way, should should have a certain physique, should weigh a certain amount or not weigh a certain amount and to be able to wear or maybe it's to do with size of clothes and things and I know that at times I struggle with this particularly with navigating through uh, into pregnancies and beyond several times you just don't have the same body as you had um before having babies and I, I do sometimes have to have a, a good conversation with myself about the fact that my body has done these huge life transitions which is amazing and should be celebrated and is not something to critique and wish that you were a certain way that you might have been 10 12 years ago so ridiculous but I think that the psychology is a really interesting one and I think I've discussed this with you before Emma but um like I probably have at every stage of my life been in some way self-conscious I think most women are self-conscious about body and physique and always striving to be a bit different than I am at any point in time but then I look back like now I look back at photos 10 years ago I'm like oh my god I should have just walked around naked like you know I should have been celebrating myself at that stage you know what I mean or it's probably running around beaches with a towel around me or something because I didn't want to be seen and I was like and then I'm like I wonder in 10 years time will I look back now and go oh my goodness you did not know how you, good you, you had it you absolutely will you will <laughs> but how mad how warped is our do you know what I mean? Like sometimes I look and I can recognize that that's how I, I can reflect upon growing you 10 years ago and go, you should have celebrated. You were, you were looking mm-hmm. banging. It was great. And now I'm like, right now I'm very heavily critiquing myself. And I'm like, but I'm also aware I bet you in 10 years time, I'll appreciate myself more now. I'm like, just appreciate yourself now. Just get in the present. Like yeah. I just don't get it. I think there's a lot of pressures. Would you say that drives into it or feeds into it, Casey? Yeah, for sure. And I think we all have kind of different motivations there, whether it be, you know, societal pressure or, um, you know, um, wanting to impress certain individuals, things like that. And um, I mean, that's the thing I've just tried to really let go of that is something that I, um, you know, trying to look at myself with neutrality, I think is the biggest thing that I've been really practicing, just not having any emotion attached to it, not good, not bad. Um, Just, you know, that's, this is what I look like today. And, um, you know, focusing on things that, um, you know, in all reality are more important, right. Um, you know, cause you know, our bodies are going to, to change over time. That's inevitable. Like it's, um, you can't ask someone to not age. Um, that's just not how it works. Um, and so it's, it's just one of those things where, yeah, I think the, the, the pressure and just how things are depicted and like on TV and movies and commercials and, um, you know, there's just a a certain expectation in terms of appearance and, and, and things like that, or everyone wants to lose five pounds, right? Uh, just five pounds. Yeah. And, um, and then my life would be perfect. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, um, so 
you know, I, uh, health has always been important to me. So I've switched my, my North star, if you will, towards health. And, um, so like, that's where my, my focus is and not so much on, on what I, what I look like. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I you know, I've never been pregnant myself, but I just, I really feel for cause I, that population who, you know, want to have their bodies back. And I, I think, you know, I don't, you know, have no clear plans to become pregnant at any point. Um, but I think I would struggle with it, you know, thinking about that and thinking about my history, I think I would struggle with it a lot. And so, um, yeah, I just, I love that there's so many voices like y'all's out there that are kind of, you know, telling, it's okay, mama, it's all right. Like your body did an amazing thing. Um, you know, it's still, it's still amazing no matter what it looks like. Um, and to, you know, really just celebrate that instead of critique it. Right. Absolutely. I love that. Amazing. I'm inspired. I need to make sure I share this with my teenage stepdaughter and, and all her friends because they're very much going through that awful TikTok, uh, mm. Instagram, Instagram phase where they are comparing their bodies to, something that's not real um, and it's really important that they remember a lot of that smoke and mirrors but when you're 13 which is her age that's really hard it's really hard so you know that's that's the yeah. age you were when you 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 were in hospital so I get it you're still so young um and you but you have so many ideas as to how you should be and the ideals of how the world runs and it's Oh, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough being a teenager. And it's, it's, you know, they, I think our teenagers need so much more support than they get. So hopefully these podcasts and these blogs that you so beautifully write um, will be read by, by um, all of these girls because it's incredibly important. And I hope, I really hope you carry on doing the incredible work you're doing. What are your, what are your future plans Ah, oh, that's the thing. I don't, you know, I'm just kind of taking it. I'm taking every opportunity I possibly can. Like I, uh, the, the talk that I've been referencing throughout this was my first public speaking, um, chance that I've ever had. And I took it very, very seriously. Um, I talked for 20 minutes and prepared for three weeks straight. Um, yep. um, because it meant so much to me. Right. And, um, so being invited on the podcast with, with you brilliant women has, um, you know, I, I put that on the list of things I'm doing, you know, to try to try to help and, and, and try to get this sort of message out there. Um, I have a lot of um, kind of like dreams and aspirations and kind of projects out there. But, um, you know, that's all going to take time and, and energy and just got to be the right place at the right time. But I, I do have a I do have a dream of somehow being able to shift culture in some way that's not um that's accessible for people, right? That's not scary. That's not, um, you know, only through the medical vein. So, um, I have, I, I don't have specific plans, but I do have plans to do, to do something. <laughs> well, we'll be oh, watching. Cause I yeah, think we dream, we need people to dream big and have those out of the box ideas because that's the only way that things change. And we need, we need the new ways that are other routes because if the conventional way isn't serving everyone, and um, I suppose being the answer for everyone, then we need someone who comes up with a creative way. And I think someone with life experience, professional experience, and just an all around neat person like yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't wait to see what you do because I think you'd be really inspiring and really supportive for many people. And that's why we were so delighted that you're coming on. And yeah, keep in touch with us because if you ever do do anything 
in this area, we would love an update on it. Yeah, of course. I, I love keeping in touch with you um, across the across the pond here. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I will definitely let you know. Of course, now that we're talking about it, I want to go like write down like five things. Um, I it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Get, get the mind going. I, I got to get the ideas out now. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, you heard it here first, anyway. So <laughs> you're going to be big news, and we're really excited um, to see to see what your future holds. So, thank you so much for joining us on your lovely sunny afternoon, um, our very cold evening, and um, yeah, hopefully we catch up soon. And if you want to find out more about Casey, we will um, attach all of her contact details to our show notes. Thanks so much, Casey. Yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. We always love to hear your feedback and any questions you might have. So please do contact us via Instagram at your cervix underscore the podcast or Twitter at your cervix underscore PM. Don't forget to check out our wonderful sponsor, Pelvic Relief. You can find them at www.pelvicrelief.co.uk. Gronya and I really look forward to catching up with you next week.